0: Hi, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. The complexities of leading an organization through today's crisis share some important parallels with leadership through a military conflict. Today, Yuval Atsman, a senior partner in our London office and a former tank commander, discusses with three top military leaders the advice they would offer corporate executives based on their experience leading large organizations through conflicts. Yuval is the co-author of the new article, Lessons from the Generals, Decisive Action Amid the Chaos of Crisis. Here's Yuval.
1: The coronavirus is a major global crisis. It has imposed lockdowns on many communities. It has taken our freedom of movement and assembly and changed our life quickly and profoundly. It threatens many of our on the health side, and it's destroying our economies. In these warlike conditions, the battlefront is moving fast from safeguarding our lives to safeguarding our livelihoods. I am joined today by an impressive panel which knows better than most how to respond to crisis and take decisive action amid the chaos. Mike Donnelly has served as the 22nd Secretary of the United States Air Force. He has 30 years of experience in the national security community, including service on the staff of the United States Senate, White House, and the Pentagon. Mike, it's great to have you. Thank you. Also with us, Bob Keller, uh, a retired United States Air Force General who served as Commander United States Strategic Command and, among other roles, also served as Commander Air Force Space Command. Uh, Bob, great to have you as well. Thanks.
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: Also, Eric Olson, a retired United States Navy Admiral who last served as the eighth Commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command. He's also the first Navy SEAL to ever be appointed to three-star and four-star flag rank. Eric, great to have you.
3: Thank you, Yuval. Great to be with you.
1: So before we dive into specific questions and recommendations for leaders trying to respond to this crisis, it would be good to qualify the analogy to wartimes. After all, this is not quite a war. What is it that you think is important to keep in mind when we consider the analogy to wartime command? Maybe, Bob, you can start us off.
2: We've used this wartime analogy for other major public policy issues in the past, the war on crime, the war on drugs, war on poverty, and now the the war on a global pandemic. And I think there are many features of this COVID-19 crisis that lend themselves to a wartime analogy. The demands that are placed on leaders are very much like wartime demands in terms of their ability to articulate objectives and priorities and rally the the public behind them it's appropriate to use this analogy in the tools and techniques that get applied certainly this requires major national and international organization it requires planning it requires mobilization it requires communications and innovation a commitment of resources all the same kinds of things that you would talk about in wartime This is also interesting in that it's warlike in the need for allies. For maybe the first time, the entire world needs to be viewed as an ally in this particular crisis. But on the other hand, there are some significant differences between a war and a global pandemic. A war is a clash between human beings, and this enemy doesn't react in any kind of a human way. It has no fear, it has no passion, factors that influence a human enemy, have absolutely no effect on COVID-19. It doesn't get deterred by anything that we do, and it's not going to surrender. Second, all the sacrifice is on the human side. Everybody is at risk. There's no sanctuary. And so COVID-19 is going to have to be defeated in the laboratory before it can finally be defeated in the field. And that may take a very, very long time, which requires patience. That is an attribute that is going to be difficult for our leaders to continue to insist on. Until then, all we can do is really try to limit the scope of the impact and ask people to be patient when there's most likely not going to be any psychological equivalent of victory.
1: Great. Eric, what would you suggest? I think uh, Bob
3: is... Fundamentally right. There are features that make uh, that make use of the term "war" not inappropriate, but I do believe that the difference is that the weapon against this enemy is is science, and and success will depend on how policy makers use the data that scientists provide. This enemy is more predictable. It can change and morph, of course, but it can't consciously adapt its strategies and tactics based on our actions. And as Bob. Said, this is not about geopolitical advantage. The whole world is facing the same threat. There's challenge and opportunity in that. And then, almost unique for us as Americans, is we're fighting this on our home
1: front. Mike, any additional thoughts from you?
4: I certainly agree with the framework that Bob and Eric have set up. I'd like to focus for a minute on the similarities from a C-suite perspective. I do think the CEO in this context is very much like a commander. The C-suite staff is very much like a headquarters staff in the military. And the challenge of this crisis reminds one that you need to use all of the tools in the toolbox. i used to use a golf analogy, you don't leave any club unused in the bag. It reminds us that so many aspects of daily operations are critical and this is a a theme in the military where large groups of teams Support frontline warfighters. And here we're reminded of what's critical infrastructure in a public health crisis. We're not only thinking about the health and safety issues, but also building maintenance and food service and our IT staffs. Teamwork across the full capabilities of a corporate staff is vital to keeping a CEO and the leadership team informed to formulate and execute decisions.
1: In terms of the similarity between commanders and executives, one of the things that I'm hearing from many executives is that this is certainly the first time that they're facing a major crisis like this, and they have a big responsibility to take care of organizations that are scared about the immediate health risks and also the economic risks. What military practices apply to how they lead their own organizations today in this crisis? Eric, do you want to get us started?
3: Former Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld used to talk about the knowns, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And I think we're in the realm of the unknown unknowns at this scale. And with a virus uh, that is unprecedented, uh, this is going to require a different kind of leader. This is beyond uncertainty into ambiguity. The leaders have to accept more risk because they'll have less knowledge as they make decisions. There's no doctrine or master plan that applies to this. Anything ever written does not apply specifically uh, to this event. The ability to communicate clearly and, at least as importantly, authentically, is very important for the leaders uh, going through this. An ability to delegate effectively and lead a more empowered organization that requires a level of trust that may not exist in many organizations now. So leaders are going to have to be more comfortable with a flattened organization. They're going to have to be more tolerant of mistakes that will inevitably occur in a lack of knowledge. And they're going to have to apply more imagination in problem solving. The solutions to this crisis will be outside the curbs of what most leaders are used to dealing with. So it's going to require leaders to have bigger ears, to hear more and, uh, and more diverse uh, approaches.
1: Mike, any thoughts
4: from you? Keeping communications open across the C-suite staff is obviously vital. There needs to be a battle rhythm, if you will, that keeps a full flow of information coming into the leadership An assessment process that the CEO leads and the development of options for the way forward. But on the health and safety aspects, I'm aware of some cases where corporations have had to call in for outside help. So this is an area where you're relying on information and expertise that may be outside of your corporate capability. It's a reminder that sometimes you don't have all the expertise you need on your staff. And when you don't have it, you need to go find it.
1: I think that you're absolutely right. Bob, what would you like to add in terms of military practices that can be relevant for executives during this time?
2: So there's an old saying in the US Air Force, flexibility is the key to air and space power. And I think that's right here. Leaders are going to have to be more flexible in much more uncomfortable ways than they have ever had to be in the past. And I would pick up on Eric's point about delegating. You've got to be, I believe, uncomfortable in the amount of delegation that you're willing to assign in a crisis like this. No one has all the right answers. You're going to have to be comfortable with taking more risk. And I think of critical importance for leaders is being able to set a direction and then adjust. We have another old saying in the U.S. military, our members act with disciplined initiative. Commanders transmit what we call commander's intent to their people, and then they rely on their people to make the right judgments and do the right things based upon the information that they have. That's not always uh, something that C-suite executives are comfortable doing. And I think it's critically important at this point in time.
3: Yeah, this is Eric. An old mentor of mine used to say, when the map differs from the terrain, you got to go with the terrain. And that makes many leaders uncomfortable. They like to have guidance. and There is just a lack of guidance here. People are going to have to be comfortable adjusting to the terrain as they walk it so that is a military skill that is applicable.
1: You all talk about the need for empowerment and the need for people to respond to new information. One of the emphasis that has been embedded in McKinsey by our early managing director, Marvin Bauer, is on helping our clients to make fact-based decisions. Military organizations are quite good at doing that even during very intense times, whereas companies even during relaxed times are not as good at uh, having full consideration of facts. How do you make sure that you have the right information?
4: I think part of this is, as Bob and Eric have emphasized, the necessity of making decisions without complete information and being willing to take risks. It's an iterative process, really, where facts do change. You get more information, things become clearer, some things become less clear. But you put yourself in an iterative decision-making process where you're able to recognize change with new information and respond in an incremental way to do course corrections.
3: Absolutely. I think there's going to have to be upfront a recognition that the facts are only facts for a while. We are learning more every day that alters what we believed as fact about coronavirus. But I just like to have an idea that I saw used with some success. And that is, and Mike talked about this a, a bit, and that's the idea of getting your network of experts and then crowdsourcing them to verify observations and help determine which facts are more real than others. This notion that a doctor sees something in a patient and gets out on the net and says, "Is anybody else seeing this? It has been very helpful with respect to this specific crisis and it's helped short some of the facts and rumors.
1: We're also seeing in the medical community collaboration, not just between academics and companies, but also between competitors to form the consortiums that will bring the solutions in the fastest way, which is an example exactly of the crowdsourcing you're talking about.
2: I think this is... A very interesting dilemma for C-suites. They are accustomed to operating in a highly competitive environment. And yet success in this environment is going to depend on sharing in ways that they are not accustomed to doing there is still going to be a tension here between their need to be competitive and their need to share. We face this same kind of thing in the military with the need to protect classified information and the need to have everybody with that same basic amount of information to be successful on the battlefield. CEOs and corporate leaders are going to have to be very comfortable with consuming information that's not from the same sources that they always get it. And likewise, sharing information in return. The other thing here is this tension between ambiguity and risk. Military commanders deal with those two factors constantly. You never have perfect information and you can never eliminate risk. You can operate with the information you have. You can seek more information from broad sources and you can manage risk, but you can never eliminate it. And military commanders eventually get comfortable with that that's the world they live in. I have at least observed some CEOs are not comfortable with that at all because their shareholders don't want them
1: to take much risk. If I pick up on that theme, if we look at communication generally during this crisis, we've all been observing a rainbow of styles, people that are more forthcoming, more quiet, more authentic, more engineered and so on. What do you all think is a good way for communication?
4: My experience has been that when crises start to develop and get very serious very quickly, the filters on information and communication start to go down. There is a need to get information from all potential sources available. There's a need to communicate up, down, and across with the workforce, with your shareholders, with your financial institutions. A regular battle rhythm for communication is helpful in this environment. I think this is an
3: area of particular importance. In crisis, the speed required to make decisions tends to cause communications to be conflated with transmission. There is a difference communications actually requires somebody to receive a- and acknowledge receipt in the way that you intended the message to be sent. That makes a hierarchical organization like the traditional military structure, like many large private sector organizations, not the best suited for crisis kind of action. Crisis situations require flatter organizations, networked teams outside of the central hierarchy, and, uh, an ability to trust across those teams, communicate uh, across those teams uh, without the central command element, knowing everything that's said.
2: My observation of effective leaders over time has been that they are effective communicators. They're not all great orators, but they're all effective communicators. That effective communication in a crisis begins with the trust and confidence that you have established long before the crisis. A crisis is a bad time to try to get your people to trust you. (laughs) These days, no one person or group or institution controls the narrative. I'll recount what a leader of mine said a long time ago, that you cannot over-communicate in a crisis, provided those communications are effective, not just volume both in terms of decibels and volume in terms of amount, it has to be honest communication that is willing to lay out the good and the
1: bad. I wanted to switch to another topic. There is a very significant amount of change awaiting on the other side of this crisis. While we don't know exactly what it would be and when it would start and how fast the economy would recover, it's clear that executives need to start to plan ahead for that period. Now, again, this is something that military command almost regularly faces in terms of planning across multiple horizons. So it'd be great to hear um, from you all about that. Maybe if you can start us, Bob,
2: There's another good saying that I learned from my colleagues and friends in the ground force and close combat units, and that is you can't always focus on the five meter target. You know, you've got to be thinking about other things than just what's immediately in front of you. Typically, in military activities, we are looking at three event horizons. One is current operations, there's what's happening right now and how you have to support that. And then there's a group that's off doing future plans. And then you transition to future operations. Those three event horizons are always simultaneously moving as we're working our way through daily operations or a crisis. And all of those are shaped by the objectives that you're trying to achieve and are laid out by a commander who says, here's what my intent is. Here's what I think we need to go do. Here are the objectives we have, and here's I want to go about trying to achieve these objectives. And then the lower levels in the organization can go plan and execute. Thinking in terms of multiple event horizons is very important, especially in a crisis like this. I think Eric said this earlier. We don't have all the facts, but we should be getting smarter as time passes. And so what's passing as current operations now in emergency rooms is shaped by people who are taking in the data and then establishing the next iteration of the plan and then moving to make sure you're resourcing people to go do that?
3: I think this is a really good question, and it's fundamental. It's not enough to win the war if you're not prepared for the peace that you hope to create. And this balance of addressing the urgent and the temporary uh, versus the important and the enduring Uh, is a real challenge. Most military organizations uh, deal with a future plans section, uh, something in the architecture with a separate purpose and a separate set of assumptions. The current operations people are going to operate on a set of assumptions about what the nature of the crisis is and how to get past it. The future plans people are going to operate from a set of assumptions about what the next world will be. What will it look like? Uh, after at least the highly infectious state has passed, and how are we going to deal with that? Because in crisis, everybody wants to focus on how to solve the immediate problem, and so you've got to separate out something different.
1: Mike, any additional thoughts from you?
4: It's worth thinking about in the C-suite how you balance the time that's given over to business development as opposed to current operations. Maybe that's the best analogy. The most stark example I recall from my Pentagon experience was the Desert Shield, Desert Storm timeframe. Berlin Wall had already started to come down. The dissolution of the USSR was Beginning the unification of Germany was occurring. There was planning going on for a smaller military in the early 1990s. And yet Desert Storm intervened and there was a great focus on near-term operation mobilizing capabilities from across the military establishment, sending tens of thousands of troops to the Middle East for that conflict. So we were simultaneously mobilizing military for conflict, building it up and putting it in the right places. And we were at the same time planning for the drawdown of the post-Cold War era in the early
2: 90s. It was quite stark. Well, could I add one other thing here? In my last five or so years worth of experiencing some board activities and seeing industry from a completely different perspective than what I did uh, while I was wearing a uniform. A couple of things jump out at me. One is I think we're not saying enough in this crisis that it will eventually end. This is not going to go on forever. There will be an after uh, after this. And companies are thinking about that. That's appropriate. They've got to think that we will move beyond this. And so that leads to the point that Eric made about assumptions. They're going to need to be very careful about the assumptions that they make about what this looks like afterwards and what they really have to do if they're going to make assumptions is give them a very thorough vetting. You probably shouldn't come up with a view about what the future will look like. You should come up with many views about what the future looks like and plan, at least at some level, on all of those scenarios. Otherwise, they are taking extraordinary risk that they will get it wrong.
1: Indeed, Bob, we do emphasize for many companies the importance of using scenarios. And while we have provided them with some economic scenarios that we've created as McKinsey, there's, of course, a lot more that they need to create in terms of what it means for them on demand scenarios and various other aspects. And for companies that are so used to having an annual budget that drives a lot of the company or three-year strategy plan, this is clearly a very different period of dynamism in planning and also in decision-making. It would be great to hear from your experience. How do you know when to send something to be further analyzed and when to just take action?
4: In my experience, part of the calculus that goes into that decision is an assessment of the impact of inaction, if inaction impedes progress, then It's important to move forward, even though you don't have perfect information. You may have something that is blocking progress, a a weaker player on your staff, somebody who is implicated in wrongdoing that needs to be moved to the side so that an objective assessment can be done on the situation. Those sorts of decisions do not reflect final outcomes, but they are indicators of where an interim decision needs to be made to move forward.
3: Yeah, this is our every decision decision. Carry some risk, and I believe that all risk that needs to be taken should taken, and no risk that doesn't need to be taken should be taken. That's a very subjective line. The right time to make a decision is when it needs to be made, and that's a very subjective time. But this is the art of decision making because it can't be a science. And the person accountable for the outcome of the decision tends to apply the most analysis and the best instincts. This is more than what decision the leader him or herself makes but how the leader manages decision-making within the organization. Because decisions ought to be made at every appropriate level. And that is the art of empowerment. And empowerment carries with it responsibility. The, The person who is empowered needs to know, and it has to be enforced, that they must make the decisions that they're authorized make. That carries a certain amount of risk by the leader, and that risk has to be understood as well, because not all of those decisions are going to be perfect decisions, but the organization won't move forward if the decisions aren't made at the right levels.
1: Bob, any more thoughts from you? I think
2: this is another one of those cases where you need to have a very clear understanding of what's most important in your organization, and that helps you frame that decision-making process that Eric just described. How you have established your decision-making is really important here. Who's involved in decision-making and uh, what kind of expertise? Who's your kitchen cabinet? Who do you rely on to help you make decisions? But maybe most important is understanding, especially in this crisis, what's most important in the organization right now. And certainly right now, it's the people who are most important. And That may not have been the same answer you would have gotten out of executives a month and a half ago. Uh, What's most important in this organization may have been our shareholder perspective or what Glass-Lewis says or stock price, the value of the company. But right now, there's a different set of perspectives. So if a matter impacts the safety and health of the people, well, then that can help you understand how you have to set up your own hierarchy of decision making—that's been a thread through being able to separate urgent from important when everyone is telling you that everything is urgent and yet not everything is important.
1: If I connect a few threads that you've talked about—the importance of changing the assumptions as you get more information, the fact that inevitably this is a subjective process, and someone needs to make the decision, whether it's the senior person or the people that he has empowered—how do you deal with something that I've seen a lot in companies, which is once we have a certain idea? excited about a decision that we want to make, it's very difficult for us to say, why don't we park that decision until we get more information and we trigger it later, when in many respects the best thing actually is not to decide now, but to wait for more information.
2: Yeah, I think you have to be decisive, but not reckless. Here's where the wartime analogy doesn't hold up for a global pandemic. George Patton used to very famously talk about the value of audacity in a commander. I don't think there's any value in being audacious in a global pandemic. You know, maybe you can be audacious in putting out a vaccine or clinical trials, but decisiveness is not the virtue here. It's being able to make good decisions and understanding, as both Mike and Eric said, the art of command. We don't call it the science of command. Uh, You know, we talk about command, control, communications. Command is an art. Control is a science and communications is tools. At the end of the day, this is a human endeavor and the human at the top has got to get the advice and uh, participative leadership that they can. Great. Eric, anything from you? I'll just sort of
3: carry it down the organization. As decisions are made at each level, the people need more than authority to make those decisions. They need permission. And permission requires some level of resources. So to empower somebody to make a decision and not actually give them permission to make it without coming back to you for more money or more people or more stuff isn't actually empowering. It's only asking people for their ideas.
1: I wanted to ask you, Mike, on something that I know you um, are quite passionate about, which is learning from mistakes and bringing those things into the culture of the organization to make it stronger. Can you share some of your thoughts about how leaders can do that, even in this very dynamic time?
4: The current communication environment has uh, helped uh, inform leaders when they've made mistakes. So there's information and reaction and second guessing of decisions that comes from all direction to a leader. And it's important to keep uh, ears open to credible and concerned reaction to to decisions that may in retrospect have been mistaken. The first thing to do is keep communications open to be able to recognize shortfalls. A government environment includes inspector general like functions, auditing functions that is populated with people who are willing to stand up to speak truth to power. And it's important not to develop the antibodies against criticism from the inside or from the outside that ends up repelling critical thought and critical reaction to to decision-making. So you have to be able to recognize when mistakes have been made and own up to them. I recall how Ronald Reagan handled the Iran-Contra affair. He called in an outside commission. The Tower Commission came through with findings uh, that were critical of the president and the president owned up to them, spoke to the nation, admitted his mistakes, as a way of enabling himself to move, in the country to move forward. I also recall during military operations in uh, 1989 in the Persian Gulf where a U.S. naval vessel shot down an Iranian airliner uh, by mistake in a highly crisis-oriented environment, originally thinking that they had shot down Iranian military aircraft. And I literally watched the United States government as the hours clicked off assess information coming from a variety of different sources and watching the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff step out in front of the press and admit America's mistake and culpability in that terrible tragedy.
1: Eric, anything to add?
4: Just a different flavor. First, organizations
3: learn much more from mistakes, but they can only learn if everybody knows that the mistake occurred and what the response was. It's fundamental for a leader to create an atmosphere of sharing a mistake, the mistakes that are covered up. Nobody learns from those except the individual who was closest to it. A leader's got to be able to reward an action, even if it led to a mistake. And everybody's got to see that.
2: I would add that the best military organizations I was ever associated with were learning organizations. What made them learning organizations was the value of admitting mistakes, number one. And number two, they almost all had a critique process. And it didn't matter what rank you were or what position you held. When it was time for a critique, everybody sat in the room, the door got closed. You could almost hide your rank And the critique was sometimes very uncomfortable. Those organizations were far better for it because at the top, every one of those leaders embraced that kind of a learning environment so everybody else in the organization valued it also.
1: It's fascinating. Given that military organization have at least the reputation of being more rigid and hierarchical, having the right atmosphere for people to exchange information, discuss mistakes, even for leaders to be vulnerable, by role modeling their own sharing of mistakes is particularly important. And it's also a great transition to the last topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which is around leadership during this time. One of the famous saying is that character is revealed when pressure is applied. And certainly there's a lot of pressure that leaders are facing. What what do you see as some of the most important things that leaders need to get right during this period? Eric, any thoughts from you?
3: So I'll talk about what an opportunity this is. It is important for leaders to understand the character, the abilities of their subordinates to operate under pressure. Often we try to inject pressure where there's not enough natural pressure just to see how leaders respond to it. Here we have an extraordinary scale of natural pressure. I would urge leaders to use this opportunity, create the teams, put people in leadership positions, and then carefully see how they respond to it so that the organization is stronger coming out the other side.
4: This is an extraordinary crisis in its scope, dimensions, and it cries out for lessons learned project on the backside to assess what has gone well, what has not gone as well, what could have been done differently, the government response, the private sector response, roles and responsibilities in some very nebulous areas. It's very important that any leader come out from this process with their credibility and trust enhanced. Because uh, the psychology of leadership and management, the views of the employee base, the views of the market, the views of the financial community, how well a organization functioned under this pressurized environment will be the subject of uh, review and comment after the fact.
2: Bob, would you want to share anything more? Yeah, I would echo the importance of character-based leadership here. Uh, I, I think it shows, at every level and it's also showing the critical importance of leaders who can not only communicate effectively but remain in control first of themselves their calm appropriately for the situation, that doesn't mean that you don't show any emotion, but it means that you're demonstrating a level of control here in an uncontrolled scenario. And people can rely on you and your judgment. Those attributes that allow a leader to rise to the occasion under great stress don't begin When the great stress arrives, I think all of those things have to be present and shown to the organization prior to that time.
1: One of the characteristics that makes this very different is that people cannot be together and they actually have to communicate and inspire and motivate their teams in many cases while um, everyone is at home. And in some cases, it's very difficult to know what people are going through in terms of their personal challenges. How do you advise leaders to maintain morale? What kind of messages can resonate the most with people's staffs during this time? Mike, what do you think?
4: I think the right word for this is empathy. So in addition to the general requirements to keep information flowing, infusing that with empathy is a very important role for leaders right now to share in the struggle, to recognize the scope of the corporate effort that's going into responding, the sacrifices that are being made by individuals along the way, to share in the losses and in the sad news that sometimes comes in the middle of... uh, crisis as military units take casualties, as corporations and families have losses, and to recognize the successes, uh, no matter how small, the people that are getting the work done through lots of different turbulence and uncertainty and risk.
3: Yeah, I think a, a leader needs to be clear in the purpose and align the workforce around that purpose so that everybody's pulling their oars in the same direction. Survey after survey shows that the most respected qualities of leaders are integrity and tenacity. They've got to know that the leader is telling them the truth, and they've got to believe that leader's going to be there to help see them through the crisis to the back. And, uh, and part of that is sharing facts as they are known and stopping rumors as they begin to emerge. In an inherently chaotic set of conditions, morale is built around stability and predictability wherever it can be provided. And that's tough to do, but it ought to be a focus of a leader. Steadiness and calmness, as Bob mentioned, are essential. I think a leader has to be visible. Culture and morale and standards all depend on the leader. And none of those can be sacrificed in a crisis. A culture left untended will go someplace a leader doesn't want it to go. And once it does, it's impossible to get back. Morale comes from the top. And the leader's got to understand, in my view, that with all the empathy that Mike just talked about, standards can't be sacrificed. You know, the behavior that a leader accepts in his or her presence during a crisis becomes the new standard. It's tough to recalibrate that standard after the crisis finally goes away. So this idea of never walking past a mistake and
2: not making excuses for people just because they're in a crisis mode. I would avoid being a cheerleader. I think that your people need to understand that you're sincere. As sincerity comes from you acknowledging that there's both good and bad associated with this. There are real risks that people are taking. There are real problems that, that they are encountering that are far beyond the kinds of problems that any of the organizations have had to deal with in the past. This involves their families, their future, their homes, everything associated with it. And so acknowledge the good and the positive, but also be as honest About the risks and the dangers. Otherwise, I think fear tends to be magnified the farther away you are from the point of contact sometimes because your mind is telling you something that maybe isn't really happening. And so your uh, ability as a leader to walk down the middle of this road with trust and honesty is.
3: Critically important. Yeah, let me just reinforce the importance of what Bob just said. This notion that you can only pass the good news without passing the bad actually destroys the the authenticity and the integrity of people. Uh, I mean they won't believe what you're telling them it's good if you don't tell them what's bad as well. There's actually a leadership study around this. It's it's called the Stockdale Paradox. Vice Admiral Stockdale, when he was a captain, was the senior prisoner of war in Vietnam. And uh, in his challenge was how to communicate an element of hope uh, in a situation that was really, really bad. He was able to achieve a balance that worked effectively and a lot of the Prisoners, when they were released, credited the honesty uh, of Admiral Stockdale's message in helping them get through the crisis.
1: Jim Collins talks about the Stockdale paradox in his book, Who to Great? It, it also reminds me, as you were talking about authentic leadership that moves people, there's a great essay from David Foster Wallace from about 20 years ago that was in the context of his campaign tracking of John McCain, where he writes some beautiful lines around what he thinks good leaders are able to achieve, and that a real leader is someone that can really make us overcome the limitation of our own uh, laziness and selfishness and weaknesses and fear and get us to actually do better and harder things that we thought we can do on our own. Leaders can only do that if they're authentic and caring and and honest. And the final thing that I see that some leaders do better than others is really be thankful for their teams because there's just so much that is being asked from everyone during this period that gratitude makes a big difference for people to, to know that they're recognized for what they're doing. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to... Give you a chance to end with any final advice for executives? Well, I'll start with just a couple of points.
3: One, beware of making permanent decisions while in a crisis. Mode. second is that when people come to a conclusion that their organization is not structured for the crisis, they often create new elements within that organization to deal with specific elements of the crisis. It's a good idea when you are creating something new uh, to solve a problem that you dismantle what was there that wasn't working, uh, because otherwise it just becomes confusing to the organization.
1: Great. Thanks, Eric. Bob? Well,
2: this is an unusual crisis, but it's not the only crisis that we've ever faced. People are citing the influenza epidemic that occurred in the early part of the last century. And I think there are other crises where the days were dark and people wondered whether there was a way ahead. And yet here we are. I would like to see our leaders express more of a sense that this eventually will be behind us. And will things look different? Yes, I suspect they will. But life is not ending as we know it. And I would encourage, especially
1: our corporate leaders,
2: to deal with today's problems, but help keep a longer perspective.
1: You reminded me, Bob. One CEO told me that um, after two or three weeks of feeling tremendous amount of stress during this crisis, he literally woke up in the morning, looked in the mirror, and talked to himself and said, You know, I didn't bring this pandemic. It's not my fault. Everyone is facing it. This is a global problem. And I just need to keep on going and sort of restarted his leadership in a somewhat more relaxed manner. Any final thoughts from you, Mike?
4: This is a big reminder of the value of some contingency planning and, uh, Thinking about the more mundane, less global crises that hit corporations, earthquake, fires, floods, these sorts of events, uh, it's a reminder of the need to return to some of those issues, take them more seriously, and to exercise them on occasion as well.
1: Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. And I hope all of you safe, safe and well and uh, get to meet each other in person very soon.
0: Thank you for joining us today inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on mckinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page, where you may also find links to our previous podcasts. If you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, we encourage you to contact us at Inside the Strategy room at mckinsey.com. To receive alerts to our latest insights, you can also sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.